0: We will hear argument this morning, case 16460, Artist versus the District of
1: Columbia. Mr. Unikowski. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Title 28, Section 1367 D specifies that the period of limitations on a supplemental jurisdiction claim shall be told while the claim is pending in Federal Court, and for a period of thirty days after it is dismissed. The question before the Court this morning is what does it mean for a period of limitations to be told? The Court should hold that told means suspended, an interpretation that accords with the plain meaning of the word told. That is the definition given in Black's Law Dictionary, and that is the way told is used in every other statute that uses the word told, none of which would make any sense under respondent's interpretation. If that's the the way the statute operates, it
2: seems to me that the provision at the end, which says the State can provide for a longer tolling period, is generally unnecessary if the... If the — un, un, under your position, um, it would seem to be quite unnecessary for the state to have a longer tolling period.
1: Your Honor, states could now, it, it,
2: it, it could be, of course, that they're concerned about there being only a week left or something. But in, in most cases, um, un, 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 under your view, I just don't see the necessity for the last clause.
1: Your Honor, it's true that. Typically, the state savings clause won't necessarily be triggered, but there are certainly many sets of facts in which it would be triggered. First of all, a state could enact a tolling period that's even longer than the federal tolling period. Louisiana, for instance, actually restarts the clock. But
2: they couldn't enact a shorter one.
1: They could not. That's correct. I think
2: this is a federal In other words, your, your position gives the state zero flexibility. The respondents give the states maximum flexibility. The states can have it any way they want. But you don't give any protection to the states that don't want to have long-delayed suits.
1: Yeah, that is — it is certainly the case that this statute provides a federal floor, and we're debating about the length of the federal floor. And we believe that the federal floor is longer than respondents do. And the effect of that is that it's true that under our position, the state tolling uh, — the, the savings clause will be triggered less frequently under our view. But that's simply the necessary implication of the plain text of the statute in our view. Why the statute, the
3: plain text? Because uh, 1367D — refers to the 30-day period as a tolling period, too, but that period is recognized as a grace period, the the, the 30-day add-on. The Federal statute types that as a tolling period, but it isn't, is it?
1: Your Honor, the way we interpret the statute is that the clock stops while the claim is pending in federal court, and for 30 days after it's dismissed. So we understand the phrase tolling period to refer to the, the period during which the, the clock stops. So we view that 30 days as part of the tolling period.
4: But does, does toll and uh, do toll and tolling mean the same thing?
1: I think that in the context of this particular statute, tolled means suspended. So I think that it's true that in general, when, you know, there are, for instance, the Chardin case says that in general, the word toll can carry different types of meanings. But I think that we have to look at the words of this particular statute. Yeah,
4: well, let's look at the words of this particular statute. Unless state law provides for a longer tolling period. So does that refer only to those state statutes that suspend the period, or does it also include those State statutes that simply stop the clock?
1: So, Your Honor, I think that's a a debatable proposition. The position we took in our reply brief is that if a State grace period statute would produce the arithmetic equivalent of a longer tolling period than the Federal statute, then that does qualify as a longer tolling period. Well, I don't know.
4: It's a debatable debatable position. I think you have to take a a position on it because you're making a textual argument and — It is hard to make a textual argument that toll means something different from tolling. Most of the State statutes um, stop the clock. They don't suspend the period.
1: So So unless
4: tolling includes the stop the clock statutes, uh, it doesn't do very much. And as Justice Kennedy's question pointed up, if it only includes the ones that suspend the tolling period, it does virtually nothing.
1: So let me answer that question. So, the way I understand the phrase longer tolling period is that it would encompass a state statute that is the arithmetic equivalent of a longer tolling period. So, the example in our reply brief we give is as follows Suppose you file a Texas suit with five days left in the limitations period, and Texas gives you a 60 day grace period. So, the application of the 60 day grace period in that case is the arithmetic equivalent of a tolling period of the pendency of the federal suit plus 55 days because the five more days will get you to 60. So the way I interpret those words is that that is a longer tolling period. Now, that's debatable. You may disagree with me on that, but our case certainly doesn't depend on that. First of all, if you disagree with everything I just said, I still think that the state grace period statutes might still apply according to their own terms. It's not obvious that this federal statute would preempt the state from applying its own grace period statute if it's it's longer. So in my view, I think the state might be able to apply the grace period one way or the other. And even if you disagree with that, it wouldn't affect our primary position, which is that the word toll means suspended. It may be that the necessary concomitant, if you disagree with both of the things I just said, is that the state tolling statutes would rarely apply under the Savings Clause. And if that's what the statute means, so be it. And I think that there's very powerful textual clues in this statute. Well, my
5: problem is that I look at statutory history, not legislative history, but statutory history. And the statutory history is that the ALI report set forth a very clear um, grace period um, or, or grace period. <clears throat> and Congress didn't adopt that language, it adopted this language. And so if it changed it, and it changed it so dramatically, aren't I — shouldn't I be looking at the plainer text as it reads rather than something that would have um, given you what you wanted in a different way?
1: Yes, Justice Sotomayor. That is our exact position in this case. I think this ALI report, had Congress enacted it, would have done the trick for a grace exactly. period. Exactly. And in this case, Congress didn't use those words. And I think that that underscores that it would have been so easy for Congress to enact a grace period. This is not the kind of concept that's difficult to express in words. Congress could have enacted that ALI report. It could have enacted all those state statutes that are cited by respondent, none of which use the word toll. Or it could have just said, "You get 30 days after the claims dismissed." and then we wouldn't be here today. But instead, Congress chooses this very particular wording in which it says that the period of limitations is told while the claim is pending in federal court and for a period of 30 days after it's dismissed. And when you try to figure out what that means, you look at the the way every other federal statute uses the same phrasing, and it's very clear from those statutes that they have to mean that the clock stops. And so if Congress really wanted to enact a grace period, it is impossible to imagine a more oblique way and misleading way of doing that than the words of this statute.
3: What do you do with the jinx case where everybody seemed to assume that what 136070 provided was a short 30-day extra time.
1: Your Honor, I'm not sure there's really a basis for saying that the members of the Court made that assumption. There are some statements in the petition for certiorari in that case and in one of the merits briefs that seem to imply that interpretation. There's certainly nothing in the opinion of the Court suggesting that the constitutionality of the statute, depending on adopting this rather strained construction, and in fact, there's actually language in the opinion pointing in the opposite direction. The Court, in that opinion, was discussing this old Civil War-era statute which stopped the clock, and in the Court's opinion, the Court talked about that statute as tolling limitations periods. So again, that's a pretty weak inference, too. But I just don't see anything in this opinion supporting the view that the Court's decision was dependent on the fact that the statute can only carry the grace period interpretation. I think that I've been talking about these, uh, the, the Jinx case and the, the statutory history. I'd like to focus a little bit on the text, because I actually think that the text is extremely clear that tolling means suspending. So if I could just make two points about the text. The first is that the statute says that the period of limitations shall be told, not the statute of limitations, not the limitations bar, the period of limitations. So respondent's interpretation is that the word told means removed. So that would produce the phrasing, period of limitations is removed. And that's just improper English. So just to give an example, suppose Congress were enacting a statute in which it said that the bar associated with filing suit in a particular place was lifted, so you know, the, the Court of Federal Claims or something. The statute would never say that the Court of Federal Claims is removed. It would say that the bar associated with filing suit in the Court of Federal Claims is removed. And likewise here, the statute does not say that the bar is removed. It says that, excuse me, is told. It says that the period of limitations is told. And therefore, we think that is only consistent with an interpretation that means suspended. So even in the abstract, the word toll can carry different meanings. We don't think that's consistent with tolling the period of limitations. And I think that the other textual point I'd like to make is that the period of limitations is tolled for two distinct periods. While the claim is pending in federal court, And for a period of 30 days after it's dismissed. And we don't think that that interpretation is in any way consistent with construing told to mean removed, because you don't need the tolling while the claim is pending in federal court, if told in fact means removed. You only need the 30 days. And in fact, the concept of removing a statute of limitations while a claim is pending in federal court is is incoherent. The statute of limitations is completely irrelevant when you have a presumably timely claim that's already been filed. And so, therefore, we think that the the correct interpretation is to say that the clock stops, which is perfectly consistent with the fact that the statute defines the tolling period as both the pendency of the federal claim and 30 days thereafter. And and just one other comment about the fact that the period of limitations is tolled while the claim is pending in federal court. So if the statute just said that, if the statute just said the period of limitations is is tolled while the claim is pending in federal court, period, full stop, then I think there would be no debate as to what it means. I think we'd all agree that it means that the clock is suspended. So respondents' position is essentially that by increasing the length of the tolling period, by adding 30 days, that radically changes what tolling means. It changes the meaning of tolling from stops the clock to continues the clock. And that's just not the way the Court reads statutes. Toll means what it means. If the tolling length — excuse me, if the period of tolling is shorter, then Then you have a shorter period, and if it's longer, then you have a longer period of tolling. But increasing the tolling period doesn't alter what it means to toll a period of limitations. If there are no further questions, uh, I would reserve my. Oh, sorry, Your Honor. uh,
4: Admit that there are definitions of the term toll that are consistent with respondents' argument. If we look in dictionaries, are there not definitions that are consistent with their argument?
1: So I don't actually think that there is. So respondents cite some dictionaries that talk about the word told meaning remove. But I don't think that really advances the ball very much, because it seems to me that on both sides, in some sense, the statute of limitations or the limitations bar is being removed. The question is, what's the precise mechanism behind which the limitations bar is removed? And so respondent's position is that the clock keeps running while the period of limitations is tolled, And I've been unable to find any dictionary or any case that understands the word tolling that way. And so, therefore, I understand that in the abstract toll, especially in the context of, for instance, rights of entry, which is uh, a definition offered by respondent, might mean remove. But in the context of statutes of limitations, the concept of the clock continuing to run while the period of limitations is tolled seems to me completely alien to the law. I haven't seen any statute or any case understanding the word tolling. That Do you way. think
4: there are any constitutional limitations on Congress's authority to uh, extend state statutes of limitations?
1: Yeah, I think that there probably are. So just to take the extreme example, if Congress said that the uh, statute of limitations for a supplemental jurisdiction claim is completely eliminated, so after the claim is dismissed by from federal court, you can just bring it forever into infinity, that probably would be unconstitutional or at least raise serious questions under under the necessary and proper. Well, why
4: is your interpretation uh, more appropriate under the necessary and proper clause than
1: respondents? Well, I I think that the way to analyze the question is to say this. So I think jinx gets you a lot of the way there in terms of upholding the constitutionality of the statute. It's true that jinx didn't resolve what the statute means, but jinx does hold that some kind of tolling rule is okay. And so I think the question is, uh, is this toll, it, it, Can Congress um, elect to use a suspension approach rather than a grace period approach? I think the answer is yes, because all members of the Court have agreed that Congress gets some degree of latitude on how to implement its enumerated powers. There's some debate among the members of the Court in the Comstock case about how much latitude, but everyone agrees that there's some latitude. So I think we have a very modest position here under the Necessary and Proper Clause. We're saying that inasmuch as that latitude exists, it extends to using the suspension approach, which is the common law approach according to this Court, it's the approach that this Court has said is usually used, and it's also an approach that's ubiquitous across the United States Code.
4: Well, what's notable about your argument so far this morning is that you haven't said one word about why your approach is more uh, appropriate as a — as a policy matter than uh, the other. And, of course, it's not our job to adopt policy, but in determining, you know, keeping an eye on the Constitution, uh, and interpreting this provision, why is uh, your approach more necessary or why is it more justified under the Necessary and Proper Clause than the respondents? What now, is the necessity in any sense of the word for your approach?
1: Your Honor, I agree that it's not absolutely necessary in the same way that even a grace period is Why not is happening. it more fitting? I think it's more, I think it makes perfect sense that Congress would have wanted to stop the clock. I think there's very solid policy justifications for using this ubiquitous approach. First of all, I think that what Congress is trying to do is ensure that uh, litigants are no worse off from a litigation, from a limitations perspective on the, the day the claim is dismissed relative to the day the claim was filed. So what Congress felt was that if a litigant is diligent and files suit one month into a three-year limitations period or something like that, and then the federal court sits on the case for years and years and years before declining to exercise jurisdiction over the uh, over the state law claim, then the litigant shouldn't be forced to scramble to refile within 30 days. To protect that federal litigant, the litigant should get all the benefit of the time that was left on the clock when the claim was originally filed. And I think that's especially compelling when one understands statute of limitations as kind of measuring a period of dormancy that extinguishes a claim. In other words, if you sleep on your rights for X amount of time, then you lose your rights.
4: But the claim has already been filed in federal court. Why why does the — the plaintiff need all that additional time to refile in state court or, in this instance, in the district?
1: Well, first of all, I think 30 days is a pretty limited amount of time. And there's a lot of things you might have to do to refile. It's not necessarily It's not just
4: not just
3: refiling. It's a different claim. The state law claim would be a different claim than the one that was brought in federal court.
1: Well, you do have to refile the the, the supplemental jurisdiction claim over which the federal court declined to exercise jurisdiction. But it's not as simple as just refiling a new complaint. There's a lot of things that you have to do. First of all, you might have to rewrite your complaint based on things that came out in discovery, or maybe the state has different pleading rules, and you might have to plead the claims differently. You might have to figure out which court to file in. There might be a question of which court within a particular state, you know, superior court versus chancery court, or uh, which, which state to file in. You might have to figure out whether your client is willing to pay and fund a new round of litigation. Also, the client might have to find a new lawyer. There's plenty of of, of federal practitioners who don't know their way around state court. And so 30 days really isn't that much time to do that. And I think Congress may well have said, look, if you wait until the last day of the limitations period in order to file your federal suit, then fine, you get 30 days. You were were dilatory in the first place, so you get this bare minimum. But if you were diligent, if you filed your federal suit very quickly into the state limitations period, and the federal court just sat on your claim for years, then you You shouldn't get 30 days. You should have the full benefit of all the time you had left because you were diligent at the front end. You get extra time on the back end.
0: Well, I don't know that that makes much sense. The purpose of the statutes of limitations are to protect the defendants uh, to a large extent, not just the plaintiffs.
1: Well, that's true, but I think, first of all, I think that the the defendants do have a measure of protection in that the defendants have already seen these claims. So it's not like there's these very surprising — Yeah, but
0: you just said that, well, you need 30 days because the claims might be different, all sorts of other things. You've learned new information. I'm just not sure that that makes much sense. Well,
1: I think that statutes of limitations reflect a balance. Uh, And as this Court has said many times, it's true that one purpose is to protect defendants, and there's another purpose to give plaintiffs a sufficiently long time to sue. And in preparing for this case — There's a
5: third — Protecting the state. So how do you, from Uh, having to look at stale and old claims? Certainly, it's a burden on the state as well.
1: I I, I agree with that, Your Honor. I think that statutes of limitations reflect the balance. And in preparing for this case, I've I've had the pleasure of going through the U.S. Code and seeing lots and lots of different statutes of limitations. And they're all different. Congress draws the balance differently in every case. Some are long. Some are short. Some have longer tolling periods. Some are shorter tolling periods. I think it's very hard. Have you
5: found any statutes similar to this one?
1: Yes, so um, there's lots of statutes that stop the clock. Statutes that stop the clock and give you a little extra time are a little bit less common. We found something like one and a half such statutes. So one statute we cite in our opening brief, uh, 46 U.S.C. 53 nine eleven. It does stop the clock during the pendency of an administrative claim, and then you get 60 days thereafter. And there's one other statute that stops the clock during the pendency of another claim, and then you sometimes get 30 days, depending on whether certain conditions are met. So it's certainly the case that this particular scheme isn't particularly common. However, there's lots and lots of statutes that talk about tolling periods of limitation, and I don't think there's much debate that in context those statutes have to stop the clock. Because if a statute just says that while your administrative claim is pending, the period of limitations is tolled, the only way that makes sense is if the clock stops. And so — and that is a very common scenario. And, in fact, not only in the context of statutes, this Court has characterized the suspension approach as the common law approach. It's the approach used in the American pipe context, in equitable tolling context. This Court has said that that's what's usually used. So this is not an unusual way of running a railroad. And to some extent, I think Congress just kind of took a tolling approach off the shelf and incorporated it into this statute, because that's what it does all the time. I think that's a pretty common way of enacting legislation, and I don't think that that encounters any constitutional problem. If there are no further questions, I'd reserve my time. Thank you. Thank you, you, counsel. Ms.
6: Zalikhan. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Because a supplemental claim dismissed from Federal Court under 1367C is treated for statutes of limitations purposes as if it had never been filed, there needed to be a mechanism to ensure that those disappointed Federal litigants could return to State Court and file their claims. 1367-D does just that, by providing a brief window of tolling such that the claim will not expire by ordinary operation of state law while the claim is pending in the federal court and for 30 days thereafter.
3: you have any other federal statute uh, that uses the, the words, shall be told, to mean what you suggest, it shall continue to run? Is there any other such federal statute?
6: So admittedly, there is no other statute in the U.S. Code that works in this way, but Petitioner cannot point to one either, because there are two features of this statute that set it apart from the normal shall-be-told statute throughout the U.S. Code. And that is, first, the provision of the 30-day window, and second, I think more importantly, the express and self-conscious deference to state law's ability to set longer tolling periods. And so I think what Congress was doing was enacting this statute against the backdrop of the myriad state-saving statutes that operate in precisely this fashion.
7: Well, Ms. Ali Khan, suppose you just had a statute, and um, the for a period of thirty days was excised from it. So it shall be told while the claim is pending, unless state law provides for a longer tolling period. Would anybody read that statute to mean anything other than the clock is stopped and resumes again once s- the thing is dismissed?
6: That would certainly be a tougher case for us. I think still with the ordinary meaning of toll, one might think that there could be a circumstance in which you might get only a little bit of time to file at the end of when the federal court dismisses the claim, but that, you know, if Congress thought that states, as states were, were taking care of this problem, it wouldn't necessarily have to use Toll just in the stop clock fashion. I think as this Court has said throughout the cases, whether it's Harden or Chardon, Toll has an ordinary meaning, which is to do something to the statute of limitations. Well, it does have an
7: ordinary meaning, but honestly, until I read your brief, I just sort of thought that the ordinary meaning was suspend, stop the clock. And then later, on some trigger point, the clock starts running again. And, you know, I had to go to the dictionaries to look up what you were saying it meant, whereas, you know, if I'm just any old lawyer, toll means one thing when uh, when it's referring to a statute of limitations. I mean, it means something else when you're driving on a highway. But when it's referring to a statute of limitations, it means you stop the clock.
6: And I don't think that is consistent with the ordinary meaning, as this court has read in Harden and Chardon. To be sure, stop clock tolling—or sorry, tolling—can mean to stop the clock. But as this court explained in Chardon, it's not the only meaning. And I think we can look at these. Is points. the other?
8: I mean, I, I, the uh, I, I, Justice Kagan uh, had the same reaction. I said, "Tolling means you suspended. Stop." Now. I asked my law clerk, and he went to the library, and I said, find anything, state or federal, where the word tolling is used to mean something else. They did come up with one. There is a Virginia statute. But in the Virginia statute, it means what you say. And in that Virginia statute, however, the earlier clause speaks specifically about suspending. And they suspend it under certain circumstances, and then they say tolling. Now, aside from that, I couldn't find anything. And there are dozens of uses of the word tolling uh, all over the place. So I can't say yours is the ordinary meaning, and therefore I had the same questions exactly, and I also had the question that uh, take the words out, and for a period of 30 days. Then it has to mean what they say it means, doesn't it?
6: Now a few responses Justice Breyer. I can see that that would be a closer case where they're not for the 30 day period, which is why Not
8: a closer I think case. I think the 30-day but a case period, where there is no argument the other way.
6: But let me put you That's
8: how tough I would be.
6: Let me point right, you so to what? a few examples where toll what? is used in the ordinary meaning as not stop clock. Oh, okay. As this court said Well,
8: on the toll booth, that's true. You got that one. Certainly all right, there. <laughs> all right, though, all right, what else? But
6: if I were to say that a timely petition for rehearing in a circuit court tolls the time for filing a petition for certiorari in this court, I'm not referring to stop clock tolling. I don't have to count out the time between when the court needs to — Say that
8: again, a little slower. A
6: timely petition for rehearing tolls the time for seeking certiorari in this court.
8: It tolls the time, a timely petition and for rehearing. That is how this and you mean, so if there's 60 days, we have to follow — let me just follow it. Within 60 days — I'm sorry to be slow on this. Sure. So you so have sixty ninety you have 90 60, days 90 prior. days normally. You file a petition for rehearing and that rehearing petition takes 4 weeks or 4 4 days And so now you only have 86 days?
6: You have the full 90. That is what I said in Jenkins. Yeah, so it is suspended. But you are not taking the time between when the Court of Appeals issues its decision and when the rehearing petition is filed and saying that time has ticked down, now you hit pause. You are saying you get the full 90 day period once the rehearing petition is denied. Right, isn't that that what they want here? That is a use of tolling that is not stop clock. No, in their view, (laughs) you don't get the full statute of limitations. Have you got got
8: any example where, where? it isn't used, I mean, sorry, have you got any example where the period, the limitations period, however it's phrased, if it faced with the word tolling, runs during the period while the statute says it's tolled? So, Is there an example of that? Period. I'm saying I did find one. I found one in this Virginia statute, which seems rather special. Did you find any others? Anywhere? Even in the... I don't know. I won't give examples, but
6: so, I mean, I, the I world. Give you <laughs> right, yes. more examples. I will. I will say this: that by virtue of normal statute limitations yes. principles, this is because when the federal suit is dismissed, it's as if it had never been filed. It's as if it had never existed. So, in that context, yes, the state statute limitations was ticking along the entire time. That's precisely the problem. Where is this case? Well, so these are the cases that this, this court was considering pre-19—sorry, pre-1367D. This court talked about it, um, for example, in the Cohill case, when then they said that that's—or this court said that is a reason for remanding a case once it's been removed, rather than dismissing it, because otherwise the statute of limitations well, may have run.
7: Ms. Ali Khan, I want you to assume something with me, but then I want to give you an opportunity to do something, all right? So I want you to assume with me— that if the words, and for a period of 30 days, were not in the statute, that we wouldn't be here, that we would read this as a normal stop clock tolling period. And, and that the question that arises from the statute and the reason we are all here comes from the addition of these words, and for a period of 30 days. And I just want you to tell me why you think the addition of those words should make us read the statute differently.
6: Sure. So assuming that stop clock tolling only means stop clock, or I mean, that is the ordinary meaning, then we look at the next two provisions of the statute. First, the 30-day provision. I'm aware of none, and petitioner has pointed to no other statute that both stops the clock and then adds a fixed period of time to return to state court.
7: The d statute, which does exactly that. Use the word suspended, except other than court. Exactly. Told. And that statute — it, it — it basically does exactly that. It stops the clock and then adds some time. And
6: this is an important point. When Congress means to stop the clock, they say so. They use language like suspend. No, I don't think that that's right, because to they say suspend. "told"
7: all the time but to they say stop the clock. Also, an, what I'm saying is that the concept of this uh, is used, I mean, it's not used commonly, but it has been used in at least one other statute.
6: Well, and I submit that kind of
7: stop clock plus.
6: Because it said suspended, I think, is different from that. But even if you think that that statute functions in precisely the same way, then we have to look to the unless state law provides for a longer tolling period. Congress was well aware that states had these tolling periods. And, in fact, this Court has long recognized them. And so when Congress was expressly deferring to states' ability to set these periods, it seems very strange then that they would have — put forth a statute that, as a rule, displaces the State law statute's limitations and displaces those State law tolling rules in the mind run of cases.
0: What do you do with the um, argument your friend began with, the period of limitations point? I understand your argument would be a lot stronger if it said the statute of limitations is tolled. But here it says the period of limitation is tolled. And to me that means you're looking at the period and it's suspended. Uh, uh, as opposed to just the — provision specifying a period is told?
6: So I have two responses, Mr. Chief Justice. The first is that in Hemischoff, this Court used interchangeably period of limitations and statute of limitations. So we don't think there's anything significant about the use of period rather than statute here. But I think also it speaks to a period of limitations, which is what serves as the bar and i think this is completely consistent with these background principles that once the claim if the federal claim is dismissed it's as if the statute had been running the whole time that is the
0: well but it's not the period doesn't set the bar it's, it's the the provision that provides it that does and so as i uh, acknowledged your argument would be stronger if it referred to what it was that set the bar the statutory provision but here it refers to the period itself
6: But I believe the period of limitation sets the bar in much the same way as the statute sets the bar. Once the period has expired, in this case the three years that starts from when the claim accrues, then the litigant is out of time. Now, because the federal dismissal made it such that the claim had never been brought for statute of limitations purposes, when one looks at the date of federal dismissal and counts back three years, they see the claim had accrued far before that. And so as a matter of law at that point, the claim is out of time and the litigant what, what, cannot return to state What do you do court.
3: with this court's apparent understanding of what, what 1367D means in the Raghur case in this? Specifically, the Court said 1367-D tolls the state statute of limitation uh, limitations 30 days in addition to however long the claim has been pending in federal court. That, that, that was this Court's statement. It wasn't what the opinion turned on, but it's a statement of what this 1367-D means. It means 30 days plus however long the claim had been pending in federal court.
6: And, Justice Ginsburg, I see that just as a restatement of the language of the statute, which is that the tolling is both while the claim is pending and for 30 days thereafter. This statute is unique in that it's an instruction manual to state courts on what to do with these claims once the federal court is finished with them. And this language makes clear that regardless of when that limitations bar may have fallen, whether it's one day after the federal suit or whether it's one day before the federal dismissal, it shall not serve as a bar to bringing that claim in state court. Well, there's a, there's a very
7: easy Easy way to write a statute like the one that you think this one is. I mean, Congress has done it. All the states have done it. I'll just read you one of Congress's. In the event that any action is timely brought and is thereafter dismissed, the action may be recommenced within one year. I mean, that's a very simple way of writing a grace period statute. Thirty states have done the exact same thing. Nobody writes a grace period statute like
6: this. So let me give you two responses to that. The first is, in the example that you're giving, it's talking about a federal claim that's going to be re-brought in federal court. Here, this is an instruction manual to state courts. They're saying, state court, regardless of how you feel about your statutes of limitations, as to encourage federal claims to be litigated in federal court, we're not going to let you impose that time bar just because the litigant came to federal court first. And I think, secondly, when Congress means to stop I'm, the i I'm not sure
7: I understand that answer. I mean, I mean, here, I'm not going to speak in the language of a statute, but essentially Congress would just be saying— When the pendant claim is dismissed, the person has 30 days to refile in state court. That's a pretty
6: easy way to state that thing. That is certainly an easier way to state it. But, of course, had Congress wanted to have a stop clock statute, they could have done what they do throughout the U.S. Code, for example, in EDPA, where they talk about how time shall not be counted towards any period of limitation. No, but
7: they wanted a stop clock plus 30 days. And that makes some sense. I mean, it's not the only thing that makes sense. But Congress might have thought, we want a stop clock statute for all the reasons that we often have stop clock statutes, and then we want to give people 30 days just to make sure that the person who's filing on the last day has a little bit of time. Now, you know, is that the only thing Congress could have done? No. But, you know, it makes perfect sense.
6: I think it would make sense if we didn't have this express deference to state law. It's well understood that a state has the sovereign choice of when to say claims should not be litigated in their court. And so, if we are going to intrude upon that historic power of the states, I think we have to read it consistent with the federal purpose. How Congress- does it help
3: states? Let's say we didn't have this 1367D. Uh, so, you've got uh, arising from the the same episode, a federal claim and state claim. So you want to go forward with the federal claim. You file simultaneously in federal and state court. You ask the state court to hold its case in abeyance while while the federal case is going forward. So all you get is you get an extra lawsuit that may be unnecessary to file if you prevail on the federal case claim, you get a case that's just sitting there and no action is being taken. I don't see how that's really respectful of the state's interest.
6: I mean, no, it's not. That was one of the unsatisfactory options that this Court looked at in Shanks and knew that Congress was trying to remedy that problem by saying, you do not have to bring these parallel suits. You do not have to take a chance that you might lose your claims to uh, statute of limitations by virtue of filing them in federal court. Instead, your state law claims will not become time-barred while they're pending in federal court and for 30 days thereafter. It was to hold the litigant harmless for having taken advantage of the federal forum. And so in doing so, yes, that is a slight intrusion on state law in that it is saying state courts, you may not say that a state statute of limitations bars this claim by virtue of the time it was in federal court or for 30 days thereafter. But I think it's quite a different category entirely to say that in every case, as a rule, the time for filing in state court will be subject to a federal pause button and then an additional 30 days where it's not necessary. It
8: well, is. Look, aren't there many statutes? Or I don't know how many, but isn't it somewhat? Normal, the federal government does say the thing is told. The state law is told while it's pending. Are there no other statutes like that where it just says the st- state law is pend- is told while your federal suit is pending?
6: There are a handful of statutes. All and right. Those but have there a very are some. Okay, are you saying those
8: purpose. are unconstitutional? Those are
6: times of insurrection or when it's to uh, effectuate an area of federal concern like the Bankruptcy Act. Yeah. This is saying in every case, in every case, so in other words, the, the
8: federal government, in your view, has the constitutional power, to area by area, to say we will toll the statute of limitations, i.e. suspended. But it doesn't have the power to say it across the board. Is that your view?
6: I'm saying consistent with principles of federalism that Congress may, where it is necessary to encourage a federal forum, such as in the bankruptcy context or during times of insurrection. I've
8: never seen that constitutional question. I'm sure it's been explored somewhere. Uh, I would have thought, I don't know, I haven't looked into it, but is your view that it is unconstitutional to say across the board that uh, state statutes are told while this is pending? I mean, in other words, you eliminate those words about the 30 days.
6: I think that it raises grave concerns.
8: No, I will grave concerns. What does that mean? Do you think it is constitutional? Or do you think it's not constitutional? What is your view?
6: I think that were Congress to abolish state statutes limitations, any time there's a federal supplemental, no, no, claim, not abolish
8: them. My question is, do you think it is constitutional? You heard my question. What is the answer? In and, your opinion. And, and the I'm, next question I am going to ask you is what source legally? I mean I am not saying you have an I think it's a it is a plausible claim, and I would like to know what source I should look at to read about that claim. Because so, I have never come across it yet.
6: Absolutely, Justice Breyer. I believe that it would raise significant concerns under the Necessary and Proper Clause to, as a rule, displace state statutes of limitations for no federal purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, and think,
8: here the federal purpose is what?
6: Here the federal purpose is to ensure a federal forum for no, federal not claims. not this statute, but I mean
8: in the statute. suppose it just didn't have those last words about the 30 days.
6: If it didn't have — but it did have the deference to state yeah. law?
8: No, no. no. It, what it has is just the one that Justice Kagan started with. It just says, while a federal suit is pending and there is supplemental jurisdiction, state statute on the state claim is told until this case, federal or the state supplemental case, is dismissed.
6: So I admit that would be a closer case.
4: They're no, not closer. I want to know
8: if I, there's a well, constitutional question. is it necessary
6: question? to your
4: argument to that, that it would be unconstitutional to do this? I, I, is federalism not a relevant concern in interpreting the statute, and in, in de- de- determining whether interpretation A or interpretation B is the correct interpretation?
6: It absolutely is. Assuming that we think the language of toll is ambiguous, either in and of itself, or when you look at a 30-day provision and the deference to state law, then that ambiguity Okay. Now, all I want to get at, which is a
8: serious I haven't come across that claim anywhere. There are lots of things I haven't come across. Many constitutional arguments I haven't come across. So what I want to know is what should I read in order to see that your constitutional grave concern has also In fact, we have a country with probably 4,000 law professors, and there must be a few (laughs) that that, that it appealed to. So what do you want me to read?
6: So if we are in the land where we are assuming this whole is ambiguous, then I think we look to Bond. I think we look to Gregory. I think we look to Mm -hmm. numerous cases in which this court has said where a term does not expressly set how it's entrenching on State law, one needs to read that narrowly, consistent with principles of Federalism, and that there needs to be a clear statement. I mean, this It's not a —
0: it's not a radical proposition to say it's a serious intrusion on the State when the State says, this is a State claim. These are our courts. We don't want our claim brought in our Court if it's more than three years or whatever. And for the Federal Government to come in and say, well, you may not like it, but you've got to do it, I, I think that's — raises
8: serious constitutional concerns. Mm-hmm. I mean,
6: I, I do as well, and especially because mm-hmm. there are no, no I, I grant you that there's some people.
8: I just wanted a reading list.
7: Well, here, how about this? How about Ms. Ali Khan? I mean, maybe one thing that, that Justice Breyer should read is uh jinx, where the court already upheld Congress's authority to pass 1367-D under the Necessary and Proper Clause, and in doing so, it relied on an earlier decision of this court, which upheld a federal provision that told state statutes of limitations by means of stop clock suspension— so that would seem to sort of put the kibosh on this argument, wouldn't it?
6: No, I mean, if you're referring to Jinx's reliance on Stuart v. Kahn, that was an area in which there was insurrection. If there is a federal purpose well, but it was, was used. I mean, it was, but
7: Jinx was, was talking about this very statute and relied on Kahn to make the point that federal provisions, the tall state statutes of limitations, are perfectly constitutional under the necessary and proper clause, didn't it?
6: What Jinx held is that it was appropriate as far as that case went. There was not — there was not a question in that case of whether this statute should be read to displace in every case as a rule state statutes of limitations Yes, points no taken, points purpose. taken,
7: but it upheld — but it — but it, it cited and relied on a case where exactly this kind of suspension was at issue. And you can say, yes, that was in a different context, but Jinx was using it for this context.
6: And I think context matters. In the case of insurrection, where the federal government is declaring war, there is a significant federal interest in making sure that the time in which the courts are closed would not be discounted from people is there who another,
8: There's another reading claims. list I need, but here I can draw on your experience, if you don't have the reading list. Uh, my impression, which is not an informed one, is that a lot of these cases come up in the area of torts. And uh, the, the state claim is probably maybe a tort claim or maybe an employment discrimination claim. And that the state statutes on those things, or maybe the D.C. statutes and so forth, are fairly short. That the limitations period is a year, maybe 90 days, maybe, uh, uh, maybe two years. That where they're long, it's usually property cases. And where you have a property case, probably unlikely there was a federal claim involved. Now, that's a very vague impression. You see, but but if it's a, normally a short limitations period, you could understand why Congress would want to say suspend it. It won't hurt the defendants that much. They're short anyway, and and uh, and uh, give them thirty days because if the person, as he said, he's, his argument was, well, where he slept on his rights, you know, and there are only four days left because he's sleeping on his rights. We're not going to give him the whole rest of the limitations period because there is none. We'll give him thirty days. And if, in fact, he has another few months under the state law, then forget it. Forget the whole business. He has the state law, period. Okay, I can see that. But I have no empirical experience. You have some. So so, so is is it true that this rises mostly in a state law tort area or an employment discrimination area where the statutes are fairly short? Do you know? Is there any experience I can get on that?
6: I have my own experience, yeah. but there's not considerable empirical data on supplemental claims. I think the no. best source for this is pages 20 and 21 of the state's brief, which talk about a variety of circumstances in which, if petitioner's reading were correct, the litigant would have between two years and nearly six years after the federal dismissal. In what kind of a case? So those included employment cases, tort cases, Fourth Amendment, 1983 Two to six cases. years is probably. Um, and so two to six years after the federal court suit was dismissed. Not two to six well, years that's, after yeah, the that claim. Much
8: That's because they have that much time left on the statute.
6: And I would submit that that's inconsistent with purposes of statutes of limitations. To be sure, to encourage litigants to exercise their right to bring federal claims in a federal forum, Congress may say, yes, states, you cannot treat these claims as time barred for a — Finite period no. of time, but I think to then say you have nearly six years after your federal claim is dismissed to wait for memories to fade, witnesses to move, documents to no longer be easily accessible, to then come in and bring that claim, especially when it's against a state defendant in a state court, and to and say, you say that. To it's
3: give the, give, bring that claim. I mean. The, the purposes of statute of limitations is one, to give the defendant notice. Defendant has notice from the Federal complaint that has both Federal and State claims. And the other is to prevent plaintiffs from sleeping on their rights. Plaintiff has moved promptly. It is a complaint that has two classes of claims, State and Federal. So the, the plaintiff this — is, this is not — the litigant has acted timely.
6: Yes, Justice Ginsburg, but I don't understand why acting diligently on the front end gives the plaintiff the ability to be dilatory by a period of two, three, four, five, six years on the back end. Because there, yes, there's notice of the claim at the time of federal filing, but once the federal suit has resolved, a period of time has gone by, we would submit 30 days, then the defendant thinks she's not going to refile her state suit. But then she could surprise the defendant by saying two years, three years, four years, and I think this is especially significant in employment cases where you're looking at back pay awards that run from the time of the adverse employment action. There's a chance for gamesmanship by the plaintiff, which would not happen if we were looking at this as a 30-day period from while well, the claim is pending and after its dismissal. Um, but I, I do want to get back to just the, the t- structure of the statute as a whole, because I think that the provision of this 30-day period, because it is a rarity within the U.S. Code, suggests Congress was doing something other than stop clock tolling. And I think combined with this self conscious legislation that defers to state tolling periods, of which this Court was aware, of which Congress was aware when they were enacting this statute. And so 1367D is a precise fit to the problem created by 1367C, and that comes from the fact that a, a Case dismissed without prejudice is treated as if it had never been brought. That means the statute of limitations has been ticking by the whole time. And to save that litigant from being ousted out of a state forum by virtue of that state statute of limitations, Congress said no. We will toll your claim so it will not expire during the federal litigation, and you will have a thirty-day window in which to refile. If there are no further questions, thank you.
1: Thank you, counsel. Uh, Eleven minutes, Mr. Unikowski. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I'd like to make just two rebuttal points: one about the plain text of this statute, and one about the federalism considerations raised by respondent. So, first of all, on the text, picking up on a question by Justice Breyer, it really is never the case that the phrase "period of limitations" is told ever means that the bar associated with the expiration of the period of limitations is temporarily rendered unenforceable while the clock continues to run which is the interpretation given by respondent respondent offers the example of the phrase that the a petition for rehearing tolls the time to file a petition for certiorari but in that context you wouldn't say that the period of limitations the 90 day period is tolled during the entire 90 day delay between the dismissal of the uh, of the petition for rehearing and the cert petition. Maybe you would say that the start of the 90-day clock is delayed until the petition for rehearing is denied, but that's not respondent's position. Respondent's position is that the tolling period consists of the pendency of the petition for rehearing and the entire 90-day period. And the word toll is never used that way, not in a case, not in a statute. I have not found a single reference to to the word being used in that context. Even that Virginia statute, which we actually cite in our reply brief at page 14, note 3, even that Virginia statute, which we acknowledge, also doesn't use the word tolling that way. Because even in that statute, the statute does not define the period of tolling to include the grace period, which is what respondent does. So the word tolling literally never means what respondent claims it means. And in fact, I actually think that the 46 U.S.C. 53 statute, which Justice Kagan mentioned, is very good for us. It's, it's almost like a, a Rosetta Stone for us because the title of that statute is Tolling of Limitations Period. And then the statute explains what it means. It says that the running of the, of the clock is suspended while this administrative claim is pending and for 60 days. And so I think that just underscores that tolling of a period of limitations means one thing. It means that the clock stops. So the second point I'd like to mention is this argument about federalism. And we're certainly mindful about the federalism concerns. We're not trying to undermine them. But first of all, constitutional avoidance is not a, a reason to rewrite a statute. I think that the way to adjudicate the constitutional concerns is to allow the constitutional argument to be aired and decide whether the statute's unconstitutional rather than rewriting the statute to mean something it plainly does not mean. Mr. Nikoski,
8: let's say I'm with you on constitutional avoidance and, and, and using it to rewrite things. But what, what about the presumption
1: against preemption? Your Honor, Separate doctrine, similar point of view. Well, a few things about that, Your Honor. First of all, again, I don't think that the presumption against preemption is a tool to rewrite statutes. It's, it's merely a presumption that could be overcome by the text of a statute. Second of all, I, I don't think that the Court has typically applied the presumption against preemption against statutes that so plainly are intended to apply a federal rule. So here's a statute that just says that the federal tolling period is X. And that's plainly intended to supply a federal standard. And so the question is whether this federal tolling rule is, excuse me, the federal tolling period is longer or shorter. On its face, that question has nothing to do with state law, and so the court has not applied the presumption against preemption in that context. We cite the the Puerto Rico versus Franklin case from last year where there was clearly a federal rule, and the court said that there's no presumption against preemption in just interpreting a plainly federal standard. You just look at the text of the statute. And so I think that that court should just do the same thing here. The other thing is I think that this statute doesn't really um, infringe on state sovereignty sufficiently to apply this sort of extreme presumption that, in our view, essentially rewrite the text. We think the statute is readily understood as regulating litigation in federal court. All it's saying is that when you have a claim that can be filed in federal court, that has been filed in federal court, that the period of limitations told while that claim is pending in federal court. Again, I think that's readily understood as regulating federal court litigation. It's not reaching out into state law to to a sufficient extent to justify effectively rewriting the statute. So in our view, but anyway, any presumption against preemption could not be overcome in this case, given that we think the text is just so clear. And in terms of those state statutes that respond in sites, so first of all, those are just general state statutes that apply to what happens when a claim is dismissed, dismissed without prejudice. So most of the time, those statutes will apply as written. They'll only be displaced in the particular scenario where you have a claim that's brought in federal court. And I think Congress could conclude that it has a special relationship with litigants who bring suit in federal court. It wants to protect those litigants by ensuring that while the claim is pending in federal court b- before a federal judge, the clock won't be running down. I think that Congress can regulate the federal courts in that manner. I agree that there are some federalism implications here. That's why I acknowledged in response to Justice Alito that you can't make these periods of limitations forever. Well, but if, w- when would we have a problem? problem on federalism, if it's not this
8: case, w- w- how far would it have to go before we'd actually have a problem, either under a presumption against preemption or straight-up constitutional issue?
1: Well, I gave the example of, a, of a, uh, eliminating statute's limitations altogether. Maybe making them 100 years or something might also pose a similar constitutional problem. But I think that the relevant line — hundred years is too much. Six years is too little. I mean, our our case, right? So so where where, where do we draw the constitutional? Where would you have us draw that constitutional? So I I can't, standing here right now, say that this is the, the constitutional limit. But what I can say is this. This is a statute that takes a traditional, ubiquitous common law approach off the shelf. So I think that there should be a safe harbor from a constitutionality perspective for a tolling rule that has been used throughout history. It was used dating back to the Civil War. It's, it, when Congress just takes a traditional tolling rule off the shelf in that manner and doesn't reach out to enact some extreme, unusual legislation that, that overturns state law in this unexpected way, I think that that should be a safe harbor for Congress. And so I, I can't say, standing here right now, that the, there's a 10-year clause or a 20-year clause in the Constitution that creates the line, but I just don't think that this statute should be interpreted as a approaching those limits when it's just such a traditional approach to tolling. If there are no further questions, we'd ask the Court to reverse. Thank you, Counsel. case is submitted.